children, they have a very simple view of life and of love. And the following are some children's views on the topic of love. There was a seven-year-old <clears throat> that said, if falling in love is anything like learning how to spell, I don't want to do it. It takes too long. There was a five-year-old boy who said, once I'm in kindergarten, I am going to find me a wife. David, who was eight years old, he stated, love will find you. Even if you are trying to hide from it, I've been trying to hide from it since I was five, but the girls, they keep finding me. There was an eight-year-old that observed, I think you're supposed to get shot by an arrow or something, but the rest of it isn't supposed to be so painful. There was another that said, love is when a girl puts on perfume and a boy puts on shaving cologne and they go out and they smell each other. And finally, someone, when someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. You know that your name is safe in their mouth. Today is February 19th, and on Tuesday, last Tuesday that just passed, we celebrated or observed Valentine's Day, a day which is set aside for love. And so in keeping with that theme, that theme today I would like to talk about love. But in this case, we're going to talk about the love that Christ has for us. As we're working our way through the final week, looking at Jesus' final week here on earth, Pastor Frank just read for us John chapter 17, verses 1 through 26, and the message is entitled, The Prayer of Love. In John chapter 17, which we've just read, it is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in any of the Gospels. And there are a lot of scholars who call this prayer Jesus' high priestly prayer. And if you look in your Bible, it may even have that as the heading for it. Because in this prayer, Jesus is interceding for his church, just like the, the priest would do in the Old Testament for the people of God. And that's all nice, but doesn't that sound a little bit sterile, Jesus' high priestly prayer? See, I don't get the sense that Jesus is praying like some religious official over there. I get more of a sense that Jesus is praying like a husband would pray for the woman that he loves. There is this sense of, of passion and of depth and of emotion within all of this. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, Paul tells husbands to love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Did you catch that? Christ loves the church. That is us. That's his bride. He gave himself up for her. It is a passionate love. It is a sacrificial love. And so I don't picture Jesus just droning out some dutiful priestly prayer type thing. I picture Jesus actually pouring, pouring his whole heart into these words. Because this prayer, Jesus knows that this prayer is important. But what's so important about this prayer? Why would Jesus bother to pray these things that he prays to the Father? 
Well, we need to remember that just a few days after this prayer, Jesus is going to die on a cross. He's going to be buried in a tomb. Three days after that, he is going to rise from the dead. And then 40 days after that, he is going to ascend and go up into heaven. And then he will not come back until the end of the age. And Jesus, Jesus is going to be gone. And the church is pretty much going to be in the hands of his followers. And when that happens, there are going to be a lot of dangers that need to be faced. Because Jesus, he's not going to be there in the flesh any longer to help them and to be with them. And so in this vital prayer, just days before his crucifixion, Jesus was praying for the Father to protect the church from those dangers. The first of those dangers is our arch enemy. Someone called the evil one or Satan. In Jesus, when Jesus prayed, in verse 15, he said, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. We have an enemy, and he doesn't like us very much. He intends to destroy us. Revelation chapter 12, verse 17. It describes it this way. The dragon, who is Satan, the dragon became furious with the woman, who is the church, and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. That is Christians. On those who keep the commandments of God and hold on to the testimony of Jesus. Satan's intention is to take us out. Now, it's nothing personal against you. He just hates God. And he hates God so much that he has made it his personal agenda to destroy us because we are precious to God. We're loved by Jesus. Jesus died for us so that we could belong to him, so that we could be saved, so we could have that relationship restored with God. And so Satan, he figures that if he can take us out, then he can hurt Jesus. And then that would satisfy Satan's desire to get vengeance against God. Now understand this. Satan is real. But not everyone believes that. In May 1997, the New York Times published a report, put an article out that had this report that, that was published, and they surveyed a bunch of people, surveyed a bunch of Americans, and they asked if they agreed or disagreed with this statement. Listen to this statement. Satan is not a living being, but a symbol of evil. Satan is not a living being. He is just a symbol of evil. And two-thirds of those who were questioned agreed with that statement. Two-thirds of the Americans that were questioned back in 1997 believed that Satan was just a symbol. Get this. Barna, they, they do the religious surveys. 2009, Barna did a survey, and they asked Christians. This is specifically focused at Christians. And they're asking Christians basically the same question. Do you believe that Satan is real or just a symbol of evil? 
40% of those questioned said that they believed that Satan, strongly believed that Satan was just a symbol and not real. Another 19% said that they somewhat agreed with that. So when you add all that together, you're at 59, almost 60%. Again, almost two-thirds of Christians, people who call themselves Christians, two-thirds of Christians don't believe Satan is real. But understand this. Satan is real. He is not just some symbol of evil. And he is a formidable adversary. There's an old saying that declares, know your enemy. It is derived from Sun Tzu's The Art of War. Know your enemy's tactics and know his objectives. Because if you don't, your enemy, your enemy if you don't know your enemy, you become an easy target and he will take you down. That's why Peter warns us in 1 Peter, he says, be sober-minded Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul warns us, he says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so we need to remember that Jesus, not Jesus, Satan, he is definitely real. And we need to know that he is a formidable opponent. But here's the deal. Satan cannot touch you if you stay close to God. In 1 John chapter 5, we are told, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. You see, as as long as you and I, as long as we stay close to God, as long as we stay in fellowship and communion with God, Satan can't touch us. He can do all kinds of other things around us and make our lives totally miserable, but he can't touch us. And so the first focus of Jesus' prayer was that the Father would keep us close to him and to keep us safe from the evil one. The second focus of Jesus' prayer was that we would be sanctified by his truth. In verse 17 of our scripture, it says, Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Why is that important? Well, Jesus told them that when Satan lies, Satan is speaking his native language. For he is a liar and he is the father of lies. And so one of the most important things that protects us from Satan is Scripture. Scripture is truth and Satan is a liar. And so Scripture is our best weapon against his tactics. Do you remember the time? In Scripture, where Satan is trying to tempt Jesus, Jesus has just been baptized in the Jordan River, and the Spirit of God descended on him like a dove, and then Jesus goes off into the wilderness for 40 days, and Satan tries to tempt him. Satan tried three different temptations on Jesus, but not a single one of them worked. Every time Satan tried to tempt 
Jesus, Jesus responded by repeating the exact same three words. It is written. Written? But where is it written? Well, it's written in the Bible. Jesus told Satan, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. It is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you worship. It is written. It is written. It is written, and it's still there for us even today. You see, Satan, he wanted to get into some theological debate with Jesus, but Jesus, he wasn't willing to go there. All Jesus had to do was quote scripture, and the argument, it was over. And you know why? Because when you quote scripture, you're quoting God. You can't get any higher authority than God. God said, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word go forth out of my mouth, and it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the things for which I sent it. You see, no matter how clever any man or any woman have been throughout all of history, none of them have ever uttered words that have the power to do what God's words can do. God's word is truth, and it is powerful. And that's why Hebrews tells us that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the divisions of soul and of spirit and of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There was an article that was written and the author started this whole article with this. A simple reading of the Bible here is that such and such a miracle occurred, but... And then the author went on to explain the plain, that the plain reading of the scripture was wrong. In essence, what he was saying was, I know that's what the Bible says, but that's not exactly what it means. And there, there are people out there and there are organizations and there are groups out there that even today are trying to discredit the Bible. They say, Jesus didn't really say this. This is an allegory. This isn't really what it means. And you know, Satan, he has been using that tactic for centuries. When he tempted Eve in the garden, Satan said, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And then he goes on to, to twist and distort the truth. And he was able to convince Eve that she was wrong. And that somehow God had, and some, Satan implied that somehow God had lied to her or misled her. Now if Eve had simply said, the Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it. She'd have been okay. Granted, she didn't have the Bible back then. Not like we do now. But she abandoned God's truth and what God had told her. She bought into Satan's lies. Don't let Satan do that to you. Cling to God's word. Hold on to the Bible. Hold on to his words that are spoken to you. And then the focus, the last focus 
of Jesus' prayer of love for you was this in verses 20 and 21. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus prayed that we would be unified. One church with one message and one Savior. Or as Ephesians puts it, one Lord, one earth, one baptism, and one God and Father of all. You see, Satan's objective is to destroy our unity, to divide us. You know, divide and conquer? Because he knows that a unified church is his worst nightmare. There was a meme that was on Facebook, and it kind of sums it up fairly well. There was a snake, and the snake was surrounded by this large flock of big birds. And the caption on the meme said, when the church is in unity, the devil doesn't stand a chance of victory. Satan knows that he cannot do damage to a church that is unified. And so his objective is to try to somehow create division within the body of Christ. Now, there are a lot of people who think that this prayer is about unity, and it should be about unity around the entire world, the global unity. Churches everywhere. And that is is very cool. That would be awesome if it would happen. Uh, Most likely, it probably won't. Get this. The early church, they split three years after Jesus had gone, Jesus has ascended into heaven. And within three years, the church already had a split taking place. The conflict was over whether Gentiles should be circumcised in order to be saved. And even though God had said that circumcision was no longer required, there was a group of Jewish believers that went around trying to divide the church by saying that they had to be circumcised. And since then, all down through the ages, there have been repeated divisions within the church until now. Get this. One report said that there are over, there are more than 200 Christian denominations just in the United States. Get this. Over 45,000 Christian denominations, groups, sects, whatever you want to call them, globally, 45,000 different Christian groups around the world. There's a story that's told of a poor church in Tennessee back in the early 1900s. They had had a, a terrible split, and neither side could afford to leave and to build their own building, and so both of them continued to worship in the same building, but they would have nothing to do with each other. They say that the building was heated with coal. There was a large storage unit building out in the back that sheltered the cold, and someone apparently wrote a sign or or posted a sign. The sign said, one Lord, one faith, two coal piles. Do you realize that most churches don't split over theology? More often, congregations are torn apart because of conflicts between members. 
And those conflicts, they, they escalate and they basically get out of tr- control because other members begin to take sides. And when such evil behavior takes place, Satan wins. And that's why Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount that if you're bringing your gift to God and you're on your way and you remember that a brother has something against you, don't bother with the gift. God won't want it. Leave the gift. You need to go and make things right with your brother. And then you can come and bring your gift to God. Otherwise, God's not interested. There was a story of a young man. His name was Frank. And he so very much wanted to become a preacher. So much so that his home church sent him to Bible college. And when he had completed his studies... He returned to his home church with the attitude, I've been to school, I know it all, I know everything. And he was promptly upset by the preacher, the preaching of Harry, who was the preacher. Names have been changed, so he became very antagonistic toward Harry. He even confronted the preacher about the disgust with the the way that Harry was running the church and the things that he would do. In a little bit of time, Frank got his own church some two states away. And he settled into his ministry. He had this new enthusiasm, this excitement. He was all ready and gung-ho to go into ministry. But then he began to find people were treating him the exact same way that he had treated Harry some years before. The more he encountered this treatment, the more convicted he was by the behavior towards the preacher that he had done some years earlier. And then one day Frank heard that Harry had been hospitalized back home. And he knew exactly what he had to do. He got in his car, he drove the great distance back to his hometown, he went directly to the hospital, he found the room where Harry was, and he entered the room. He visited with the old preacher for a little while, and then he asked if he could pray for the man. Harry said yes, and so literally in tears, Frank laid his hands on Harry, and he prayed for him. And then he begged for Harry's forgiveness, for his behavior some years earlier. Harry just smiled and he said, it's okay. I forgave you long ago. Frank returned to his home church. A different man, seeing ministry completely different. You see, that's what loving one another looks like. A willingness to humble ourselves with the people that we've mistreated. That willingness will do far more to defeat Satan than any than even the most profound theology. Unity. And so in this this prayer that we've been looking at today, in in the prayer of love, Jesus' prayer of love, Jesus prayed for protection. He prayed for sanctification. And he prayed for unification. The question is, are we living within that? Are we living within this prayer that Jesus prayed for us?